In this sermon series, we are walking through the book of John. We are hoping to see Jesus up close and personal. And last week, Dale asked us to reflect on which of the disciples we identified with as we answered the call to come and see. And this week, we will hear about the first sign that the disciples saw as they followed Jesus. And this will come in a familiar story from the Gospel of John about the wedding at Cana, where Jesus turns water into wine. But in the book of John, we hear an association, a use of water imagery throughout, where John uses this water to help reveal Jesus' association with the power and presence of God. So as you listen to this gospel account of Jesus turning water into wine, listen and ask yourselves, who is John telling us Jesus is? From John 2, 1 to 12. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the celebration. When the wine ran out, Jesus' mother said to him, they don't have any wine. Jesus replied, woman, what does that have to do with me? My time hasn't come yet. His mother told the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby were six stone water jars used for the Jewish cleansing ritual, each able to hold about 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw some from them and take it to the head waiter. And they did. The head waiter tasted the water that had become wine. He didn't know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The head waiter called the groom and said, Everyone serves the good wine first. They bring out the second-rate wine only when the guests are drinking freely. You kept the good wine until now. This was the first miraculous sign that Jesus did in Cana of Galilee. He revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, Jesus and his mother and his brothers and his disciples went down to Capernaum and stayed there for a few days. This is the word of the Lord. going to guess, although you don't need to confess, I'm going to guess that most of us took a shower today, maybe yesterday or the day before, but recently. I'm really hoping that all of us have washed our hands today. I know that some of us made coffee this morning, turned on the tap, filled up the coffee pot or tea. 
We've all done something recently where we went to the water tap, turned it on, and water came out, usually at whatever temperature we like it to come out at. And this power over getting the water to come right where we want it gives us the illusion that we are in control of this water. But then we have times of drought, times of flood, both of which we're familiar with here in this area of the country. And during those times, that illusion slips away and we recognize that we are indeed not as in control of water as we like to think we are. I was thinking about this, this idea of power or control over water as I was reflecting on what is the scripture telling us about Jesus, that he can turn this water into wine. And to understand that, we do need to go back into the Hebrew scriptures, into the Old Testament, to look at what those scriptures tell us about who has power over the water. And in the Hebrew scriptures, it is recognized that God alone is in control of the water. We start in Genesis with God's spirit hovering over the water and separating the land from the water. And we move to Exodus. God separates the waters as the Israelites flee into safety. We have other examples in Job and in the Psalms that remind us that God alone is truly in control of water. Sometimes also the Hebrew scriptures link this idea of physical thirst with a thirst for God. We hear in Psalm 32, as my soul longs for you like a deer. I pant for water. I'm paraphrasing. I had it in front of me in the other services as the call to worship. And Chris does the call to worship in this service. <laughs> Hopefully you know which one I'm talking about. The deer longs for the water brooks. So my soul longs for you, oh God. That's pretty close. So it's important to keep this Old Testament point of view in mind when we're looking at John's Gospel. The author of John uses a lot of symbolism throughout the book to reveal who Jesus is. And this Gospel is fairly famous for its use of symbolism. It's everywhere throughout the text. But when we're talking about symbolism in the scriptures, what we're really talking about is a way of using images or things, events, but a way of using these images to help us as human beings who have human brains and human language to understand ideas or things that are really beyond our limits. So we have symbolism given to us to help us understand things about God and who God is that are hard to wrap our minds around. So John's Gospel uses both symbols and signs to point us to God. 
in the Gospel of John, there are six undisputed signs, and then you can argue back and forth about whether there are more, but there are six definite signs in John. And a sign in John is a work that Jesus does in his public ministry that is then identified as a sign by John to point through this work to the glory of God, revealing Jesus as God's representative on earth. So we have signs and we have symbols in the Gospel of John that work together. And throughout John, we have this motif, this symbolic motif of water. There is a lot of water imagery in John. There's a lot of other symbolism in John too, but for today we're going to think about the water motif that goes through John. So in our scripture, we heard that Jesus changing water into wine is identified by John as the first miraculous sign. Before we try to understand what that sign was and why it was indeed a sign, let's figure out where we are, what we're doing. What's the context? So we are at a wedding in Cana, which is a village in Galilee. And weddings in Jesus' time were usually big public events. The bride would be paraded from her home to the groom's home or the groom's father's home. She would be accompanied by attendants. There would be singing. There would be shouting. There would be applause. She would be in her finest clothes, maybe wearing her finest jewelry as she made her way through the town to the groom or the groom's father's home. And then that home would be open to the public, sometimes for a week or more. People would come and they would eat, they would feast, they would drink wine, they would celebrate together. And this culture is also a culture of honor and shame. So this culture of honor would be about family honor. The people were very concerned about upholding the honor of the family. That they would want to preserve the status that the family had in the community and want to make sure they knew where they were relative to everybody else, preferably having more honor. And weddings were a time to display this status. If you had a really great wedding, it brought honor to the family you had a really not so great wedding oh the shame also weddings then just as now were very expensive so sometimes people in a community the men would agree to share the cost of things like weddings they would share resources in order to help each other uphold the family honor but in doing this, if a family, two families or more families came into an agreement that they would share the cost of things like weddings, they were connecting their honor together. So then you had a stake in whether that other wedding went really well because everybody knew 
that you were part of this group where you're sharing the cost of these weddings. Your honor becomes connected. So does the shame. This is important in understanding why Mary may have had such a stake in making sure the wine did not run out at this wedding. So we're at this wedding in Cana. The mother of Jesus is there. She is not identified in this gospel as Mary, but for today we will call her Mary because that's how we know her. Mary, the mother of Jesus, is at this wedding. Jesus is there. His disciples are there. Probably his brothers are at this wedding as well. So it seems to be that this family is connected with this wedding. Either it's a, uh, another member of the family getting married, or they are somehow in community with one another in relationship to this wedding. So during the wedding, some days in, they've run out of wine. Mary knows this. This is a clue that Mary has a stake in the wedding because she knows before it's public knowledge that they have run out of wine and she's very concerned that they've run out of wine. So she goes to Jesus to tell him they've run out of wine. And Jesus' response is, woman, what does that have to do with me? To our modern ears, sometimes this addressing his mother as woman is problematic. In my research, scholars are quick to point out that that's our modern ears, hearing that with a certain tone, and that no disrespect is meant. In fact... In John 19, from the cross, Jesus addresses his mother again as woman. When he brings Mary and the beloved disciple together, he says, Woman, here is your son. Certainly no disrespect is intended in that moment. So Jesus says, Woman, what does that have to do with me? And it sounds like here that he may be distancing himself from the concerns of the wedding host. If this is a concern about the party, about the family's honor, about how things are going with the refreshments, Jesus says, what does that have to do with me? His mother may have been very concerned about the party, the wine, the honor. Jesus says, well, what does that have to do with me? My time hasn't come yet. And this one is a puzzle. My time hasn't come yet. It may mean that his time to act publicly has not yet come. That time will come later. It may also have something symbolic in it. If the time has not come yet to slake these people's thirst, that time is coming later. If we're looking at physical thirst and spiritual thirst, Jesus is there. He knows his time will come to quench that spiritual thirst. 
His time is not yet now. Get Mary, tells the servants. Do whatever he tells you. And Jesus does indeed help his mother out. He tells the servants to fill the large stone water jars, which hold 20 to 30 gallons, we've heard, of water. And I imagine this must have been quite a production because they are heavy and they are stone. So the servants are going to have to go somewhere and gather water and bring it back and fill these large stone jars. And then they are told to draw out of them and take whatever comes out to the head waiter. And when they do that, and they present this to the head waiter, what is not in, in there is not water, it is wine. And not just any old wine, very, very good wine. And the head waiter is surprised because most hosts save the not-so-good wine for the end of the party when everybody's had too much to drink and won't notice anyway. And here we are with the best wine at the end, which is also probably full of symbolism, but we're going to stick with the water for now. John tells us that this water into wine is the first miraculous sign. What does this changing the water into wine tell us about who Jesus is? Well, the changing of the water into wine reveals Jesus as one who has power over water. And we know that the only one who truly has power over water is God alone. So this changing of water into wine, which could be blown off as some party trick, is in fact Jesus revealing a power over water, pointing to God's glory and illuminating Jesus as God's representative on earth. And this is the first sign. The disciples see it, they recognize it, they believe in him. And this first sign also helps us understand better other parts of the book of John that will follow. As we go through the book, you will hear more water imagery, more things having to do with water will come. We will hear about the woman at the well and the living water. We will hear about Jesus calming the storm and seeing him walk on water. We will see Jesus' side pierced and blood and water flowing out. The water and this power over water points to Jesus as revealing God's glory within him and points to us to know that Jesus is God's representative on earth. For the disciples, this was the first sign. But what about for us? 
for us now in this modern time where we really can go and turn on the tap and water comes out. And if we are at a party and they run out of wine, there is likely a 24-hour market open. We are in Sonoma County, so we for sure can go get good wine. So how might the scriptures speak to us today? If we think about the message of who really has power over the water, it's a reminder that control is an illusion. We do not have control over water, really and truly. We don't have control over wine, for that matter, either. God alone is in control. And when we recognize that God alone is in control, God alone is in control of water, and uh, we are thirsty. Yes, we have physical thirst, but we might also ask, what are we really thirsty for in our lives? That spiritual thirst, that longing for God. Are we thirsty for God? If we are, God has been revealed to us in Christ. We are able to get to know God through Christ. And as we get to know him, we see that just as he had the power to change water into wine, he has the power to transform us from the inside out. This is good news. This is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that when we are thirsty for God, when we have that spiritual longing, we can get to know God revealed to us in Christ. And as we do, we have faith that just as Jesus turned water into wine, our lives will also be transformed as we get to know Jesus up close and personal. May it be so. Amen.